You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. What is a song? We sing them all the time. They're on in our cars, in our homes, oftentimes in our earbuds. Well, if you look it up in the dictionary, you'll get something like this. That a song is a thoughtful arrangement of words set to music meant to be sung. That a song is, it's a thoughtful arrangement, meaning it's not arbitrary, it's not meaningless. Like there's, there's been a lot of intentionality that goes into the arrangement of those words and it's set to music and it, and it is meant to be sung. But it's so much more than just words and notes, isn't it? Patterns that just disappear in a moment. Have you ever thought about that? That, that in, those, uh, in those few moments, it's usually about three and a half minutes or so, there's, there's words that, that, that go out and, and, and notes that go out and then they just kind of disappear and yet what it does to us tends to linger. There's something about music that connects with us on an emotional level. Music can move us to heights and even depths of emotion. Sometimes a good song will begin to almost involuntarily move your body. Like if the beat is good enough, you just can't help but kind of tap and move along with it. Some of you even begin to dance. Not me, I'm not a dancer, but some of you dance, right? And you almost can't help it because it just, it connects with you at a soul level and your, and, and your body just begins to kind of respond. Music and songs help us to express and process our feelings. Sometimes as you feel something, you don't, you don't really have the vocabulary for it. Our emotions don't come with an instruction manual We don't always know what to feel, but sometimes the right song can express what you feel to the point, and even though this kind of sounds silly to say out loud, sometimes a good song can make you feel seen and heard. Almost like, how did they know that's how I'm feeling right now? It gives you vocabulary. It gives you expression to what you feel. Sometimes when you're down, music can comfort you when it seems like nothing else can pull you up out of the pit. There's many beautiful and beneficial realities to music. Perhaps one of my favorites is how songs attach themselves to our memories. Have you ever been listening to music? Maybe it's a playlist, maybe it's uh, the radio, and a song comes on. For those three and a half minutes, it's like nothing else matters. Like the world just kind of fades away and all you are experiencing in that moment is the song. It doesn't matter if people uh, uh, like at a a red light see you in your car and you're like belting out that tune. Many of you are smiling right now and those are smiles of recognition because you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't care. You don't care that people are looking at you because in that moment you are experiencing something and it feels like you've entered into this time and space continuum, right? Because like, you're there in the moment, you're presently listening to the song, but you're also, in a weird way, you've traveled back to the past of when that song connected to that memory. 
And it begins to, ch- uh, like, you're, you're, you're just in this time-space continuum. And at the same time, you start to think about what's ahead of you. And so in that moment, you're experiencing past and present and future. Writer Tanya Miller reflects on this reality. And she says, we remember songs perhaps more readily than we remember words. Because our mind so easily remembers the pattern of a melody. And this memory resides strongly with us. When we are listening to music, our past memory of music causes us to have expectations about what will happen next. We have this extraordinary situation of residing in the present, listening, the future anticipating, and remembering the past music that we've just heard all at once. Music is different from the other arts in that it is time-based, and this is unusual, and in this unusual and unique way, through music, our brains reside in the past, present, and future at the same time. It's extraordinary. Uh, it's, it's a gift from God. Now, this morning, as we come to Exodus 15, we come to the first recorded song in the Bible. And it's a song that is meant to both help us look back and also to help us look forward and to help us look at what we should do right now. It helps us look at the present. Exodus 15 is instructional worship that looks back in order to look forward. My goal this morning is to unpack that statement of what it means to look back and to look forward and how this is meant to be instructional. It is meant, uh, just like Paul says in Romans, that this was written for our instruction. It's not merely written to go, oh, okay, cool, that's the first song in the Bible. Uh, It's meant to instruct us on how to live. And as we move through um, this text, we'll, we'll come to three movements. First, this song will teach us to look back with adoring reflection. So if you're taking notes, that's our first heading. We're going to look back with adoring reflection. In verses 1 to 12, Moses is looking back with worship, adoring God, reflecting on how the Lord has saved them from the perils of Egypt to deliver them once and for all. Second, in verses 13 to 18, we will look forward with faithful expectation There's this hinge in the song where the focus begins to look towards what is ahead with faithful expectation. And third and finally, the song will help us to look to our present moment with renewed worship. At the center of this song is verse 11. And it asks a question that we need to learn to return to again and again. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? So let's begin together in verse 1. To look back with adoring reflection. Here again the word of the Lord. Exodus 15 and verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So as this song begins, the lyrics declare the victory of the Lord against Egypt. Now I want you to, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Exodus. I want you to imagine the scene. It's early in the morning. All the events of the crossing of the Red Sea have happened uh, over the course of a day. It's early in the morning. The sun has risen. And it's both a new day 
um, literally, and it's also a new day metaphorically for the people of God. So just the day before, if you can imagine, the Israelites were trapped. They were, they were pinned in uh, against the western bank of the Red Sea with nowhere to go. There's no bridges. There's no ferries to get them across. It's too much to go to the left or the right, and the Egyptians are, are, are swiftly approaching. And they can hear the rumble as the charioteers are, uh, are coming at them. I mean, the earth would have begun to rumble. You've got the horse hooves. You've got the, the chariot wheels. I mean, the earth would have begun to rumble. Pharaoh's grief turned to vengeance, and he was coming to reclaim his property. Verse 9 of the song actually describes the pride and arrogance of Pharaoh. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its Fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. That's the enemy. That is who is coming after them. But like we saw in Exodus 14, the Lord who was leading them in the front by a pillar of cloud and fire moves in behind them, separating them. It's funny, in one sense, they were never really in danger. Like they never even got close to them. And the Lord made a way when there was no way, and he parted the Red Sea. The lyrics of the song describe it like the floods heaped up on a pile and they became congealed, like jello almost, a wall of water on the right and left. And they were able to pass through on dry land. And in their pride, the Egyptians pursued after them. I mean, you would think that this large pillar of fire would make you go, I'm not so sure about this. You would have thought all of the plagues and everything that's happened, they would have gone, yeah, I'm not going, it seems like someone, something bigger and greater than me is on their side. Someone else is fighting for them. It's time to just put the bows away and call it. But they don't. They say, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. That's pride. Pride says, I will get what I deserve. When they're pride, the Egyptians pursued after them. But the Bible tells us in Exodus 14 that the Lord frustrated their efforts. While the Israelites are walking, their experience is they're walking on dry ground. It's not muddy, it's dry. But the charioteers' wheels are getting clogged in the mud. And they're unable to move. They were unable to advance or retreat. And in the early hours of the morning, after every Israelite had passed through on dry ground, the waters of judgment fell on the Egyptians. Hear how Moses sings about it in verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. You stretched out, verse 12, your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. As the sun rose, the Israelites were standing now on the eastern banks of the Red Sea. And as they look out, their enemies are vanquished. 
the, the noisy threat of vengeance has been silenced. And with all the gratitude and emotion, the people respond in worship. It's the most appropriate response. When, when someone acts on your behalf, does something for you that you could never do, the only appropriate response is gratitude. The only proper way to respond to the salvation of the Lord is in worship. And that's why we have the first recorded song in the Bible. It's called the Song of Moses. In fact, if you read to the end of the chapter, you'll see that Moses' sister Miriam gathers the women together to teach them this song. And I thought about why, why would Miriam teach the women this song? Why does the Bible make a point to tell you that? Well, I think the reason is because he knows if, if, if all of the women know it, then it will begin to become a part of family worship. It will begin to become a part of the song of the home. If you go to verse 21, um, you get the first couplet of the song. It mirrors what you see um, at the beginning of the song. This is kind of the Hebrew way of giving a song a title. And so it's not saying that Miriam's song was just like two lines. It's basically telling you, listen, um, uh, paper is expensive. We're not going to write the whole thing out. We just wrote it out. If we give you the first two lines of the song, you know that she's teaching the women this whole song. So in other words, Moses wrote the song and then Miriam popular, popularized it among the women so that it would continue to be sung for generations in every family and in every home. This song then became instructional and culture forming in the life of Israel. That they learned to remember and to, to attach the, this, this, this pivotal moment in the life of, of the people of God. This, this redemptive moment to attach it to a song so that it would forever live in their memory and in their heart. It became culture forming in the life of Israel. Chapter 14 and 15 are basically about the same event they're just told in different forms. If you think about it, the storyline hasn't moved forward at all in chapter 15. And much of what was covered in 14 is, is now just sung about. So uh, one way to think about it is this. Chapter 14 is narrative prose. It's history. Chapter 15 is poetic celebration. Where 14 tells the story, 15 sings the story. Where 14 declares the gospel, 15 is delighting in the gospel. 14 tells us what God has done and 15 teaches us how to respond to what God has done. See, this is instructive for us because the salvation of the Lord demands a response from us. Let me say that again. The salvation of the Lord demands a response from us. You cannot be saved and then just walk away. That shows a heart that doesn't truly understand what you've been saved from. The grace of God, the salvation of the Lord should lead to adoration and gratitude. And often this comes in the form of a song. Have you ever wondered, like, why do people of God sing? Like, why do churches sing? It's because it's, it's, it's one of the most expressive ways to just respond, Lord, we're so thankful. Lord, we are so um, humbled by your generosity. Where often our words 
fail. We don't always know the right things to say. Our hearts can get involved in the response to the Lord through song. You see this pattern repeated all throughout the Old Testament and into the New. I don't know if you've you've been reading um, your Bibles, you've noticed that this is a pattern that comes up over and over and over again. 1 Samuel chapter 2, after years of barrenness and prayer, Hannah finally gives birth to a song. And does she act entitled? Does she go, God, it's about time. I've been waiting a long time for this child. No. What does she do? She bursts forth in a prayerful song of gratitude. 2 Samuel chapter 22, when the Lord delivered David from the hands of his enemies and from from Saul, what does he do? He sings a song of deliverance. In Judges 5, when the Lord delivered the Israelites from the hand of the Canaanites, Deborah sings a song of gratitude to the Lord. You see this pattern over and over in the Psalms. Psalm 78, Psalm 124 are just to name a few. And when we turn into the New Testament, we see Mary. What does she do? After the angel visits her, what does she do? She sings a song because she knows that the baby in her womb is going to bring about the deliverance of deliverances. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, there's lot, lots of singing. And in fact, the song of Moses comes back up again in Revelation 15. The Apostle John has a vision of the end of time when the faithful are being gathered together after the Lord's victory over the beast. And what do they do? They sing a song of deliverance. The saints sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. It's like they're singing all of the the glories of the Old Testament and all the glories of the New. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Friends, the Lord's salvation demands a response from us. Grace should lead to gratitude. Grace should lead to adoration. And this is why we sing verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They begin to praise him. Because the Lord is our strength. He is our salvation. You know, we like to think of ourselves as being independent and strong. We like to look around at uh, the careers we've built, at the, the homes we have, um, at, the, at the life that we are living. And we often like to take credit for it. We like to think of ourselves as independently strong. We don't like to think about ourselves in terms of dependence and weakness. Like, Part of being American is being like, I, like we are independent. We, we even call uh, July 4th Independence Day. Like we have a whole day to celebrate our independence. We are dependent on nobody, which is a lie of all lies. In our pride, we like to go at it alone. We don't like to ask for help. And we like to live under this illusion that we have it all figured out. Pastor Paul Tripp reminds us, our problem is not our weakness. Why? Because God's grace is up to the task. Our problem is our delusions of strength that keep us from seeking the grace that strengthens us in our weakness. Friends, if you believe that you have all the strength that you need in and of yourself, you'll never seek the Lord's strength. You'll never look to him for his strength and his salvation because you don't need him. Because you've believed the lie that you are dependent and that you don't need him. If you think that you have all you need for salvation in and of yourself, you'll never seek the Lord's 
salvation. Tripp goes on to say, the gospel of Jesus is the story of a strong and able savior who showers his powerful grace on people who are fundamentally weak and unable. One of the gifts I'm going to give you this morning is to tell you that you, just by the sheer nature of being a human as you are, fundamentally, like at your core, just in the nature of who God has made you, this is not a deficiency, this is who, like God has made us weak and unable. Tripp goes on, he says, he confronts you with your weakness. Why? So you will run to him for strength. He calls you to mountains too big to climb so that in your inability, you look to him. He leads you to taste failure so that you'll find your hope in him. He works to prove how weak you really are so that you will gladly accept his invitation to enabling grace. So he closes, he says, perhaps it's not such a bad thing to come to the end of your rope if at the end of your rope you find a strong and willing savior. This song is meant to instruct us to come to grips with our fundamental weakness and need of a savior. Israel, just think about the comparison here, okay? Israel was fundamentally weak compared to Pharaoh and his army. Could they have done anything to stop that army? No. And it's plain for us to see. This isn't, they aren't like SEAL Team 6. They're not soldiers. None of them have been trained. Think about it. What were they doing right before this? They're slaves building pyramids. They're not an army. They're not trained. They have no weapons. They are fundamentally weak and unable to do anything about this enemy. Israel was hopeless to save themselves. And God brought them precisely to that point. Why? So he could flex. He could show them, I will fight your battles. I am the one who is strong. I am the one who provides salvation. The scriptures tell us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is his thing, not our thing. And the same is true of you and me. The Lord in his kindness will confront you with situations and circumstances beyond your strength. Don't count it strange when you're like, I can't handle all this. I know. That's, it's kind of the point. You're going to face situations, circumstances that are beyond your control. And as you're, I'm looking right now and I, like I see your faces and I know some of your stories and I know right now you're going through things that are beyond your strength, isn't it? He's doing that on purpose with great intent and order that you would rely on him. We were not created for independence. So you have to be able to have two identities. Like you can be an American and go, Love July 4th. I'm glad we're not under the monarchical rule of Great Britain. Great, like I love that. Proud to be an American. But don't let that seep into who you are fundamentally as a Christian. You are not to live independent. We were created to live relationally connected and dependent on the one who made us. The song goes on to say, this is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. I love that line, my father's God. It's one of my favorite lines of the song. You know why? Because it expresses the hope of many parents in this room that our faith would become our children's faith. That it wouldn't be passed down simply as culture or as 
family traditions. Those are all great. But beyond all of that, our great hope as parents is that God would lead our children to make this faith their own in a way that becomes personal. So if you're a child, I want you to look at me for a moment. Our greatest hope for you at Seven Mile Road is that you would own your faith in Christ, that it would become yours. That you would believe, not because your mom and dad believe, but because you have come to see that the Lord is your salvation. That what begins or maybe even seem like just like, a, like our family's values or traditions, that it would be fanned into the flame of personal devotion and genuine faith. That you would sing the song to say, my father's God has become my God. That the faith modeled by your parents would one day become alive in your heart as well. Part of this song is celebrating the fact that our faith is generational. It's meant to be passed down from one generation to the next. Verse 3. They go on to say, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In this song, we're declaring that the Lord is a man of war. Another way to say that is the Lord is a warrior. We often think of God as a benign, passive deity who was kind enough to kind of get things going and now just kind of steps back and just lets it happen. Like he created this ecosystem and then put up a wall of glass and he's just kind of watching it. Being like, oh, that's interesting what happened over there. But that's not the God of the Bible. You know, I had a sixth grade history teacher. Uh, and, and by the time I got into his class, he was, he kind of mailed it in. You know what I mean? Just kind of waiting for pension to, to set in and to retire. And he was infamous for saying this. And he'd say, he'd say it all the time in his indifference. He would say, pass them all, fail them all. It pays the same. Like no vested interest in like our growth and our, it was just like, listen, I'm here until I get my paycheck. If you guys fail, if you guys pass, like I'm just going to get paid the same. That indifference is not how the Lord interacts with us. He is not indifferent. He is active. He is involved. He is a warrior. God has not mailed it in. Listen to Doug Stewart. He says, it was important that they understood their God to be a warrior. One who would lead them into battle, who would fight for them during battles, and who would ensure their survival as his people. He was to define their battles for them, deciding when and where to go to war. They were to have no allies, no dependency on other foreign powers, no confidence in any earthly deliverer, but in only the one true God, their God, Yahweh. Again, it's, it's meant to be instructional. When they say the Lord is their warrior, it is meant to uh, put a kind of faith and trust in him as they go out, as they fight, as they have enemies, that the Lord is the one who fights for them. It is meant to press into their hearts that no matter what is before them, that they have a champion in the Lord. He will go before them. He will fight for them. In the coming days and years, if you read the history of Israel, you know they're going to come into contact with people who will oppose them, who will not like them simply because they do not um, uh, participate in all of the, the frivolous idolatry that they do. Have you noticed that when, peop when, when people don't see you doing the things they do, they start to get animus against you. They start to have a kind of animosity like, hey, you think you're better than us? That you won't do the things that we do? 
You, you know what I'm, you, have you felt that pressure before? Like you've done nothing to them. You haven't even really said or, or, or done anything personally to them. They just start to not like you because you choose to live differently. It's exactly what's going to happen as the people of God start moving into the land. Because they're going to become a people who are different in their customs and in their value system. There will be people who see that and begin to feel threatened that they do not agree with them or align with them. And the Israelites will be a people with the odds always continuously stacked against them. And they needed to believe down in their heart that Yahweh would be their champion. Yahweh would be their warrior. The whole first half of this song is teaching Israel to look back on who God is and what he's done and propel them into this kind of adoring reflection. That any time they were to forget, this song would help remind them, oh yeah, this is who God is. This is why we don't need to go form an allegiance with some pagan culture. This is why we don't have to worry about the battle ahead because even though I can't perceive of how we'll win, the Lord is our warrior. He fought for us in Egypt, he'll fight for us again. He brought down one of the greatest empires the world had ever known. He'll be with us now. This is meant to be instructive for us as well. We should do the same. So friends, I ask you, has your heart grown cold to the Lord? Do you find yourself lacking in motivation to live for Christ? Do you find yourself facing something that seems Um, overwhelming that you cannot do on your own. Well, perhaps this song can be instructive for you to look back and spend some time reflecting on the Lord's salvation. Maybe you need to spend some time in thinking about what life was like when the Lord found you and saved you and thinking about um, the, the pit of despair that he pulled you out of maybe you need to think back on past difficulties and situations and circumstances where the lord proved himself to be faithful to the end remember how before christ you were a slave to sin pinned and trapped with nowhere to go and yet christ moved in like a pillar of fire like a pillar of cloud protecting you from your enemies and vanquishing them in the waters of judgment Christian, we are meant to rejoice in our salvation. And often when our hearts grow cold, when we grow indifferent, it's because we've forgotten that the Lord is our warrior and that he is our strength and he is our salvation. That's why we spend time in adoring reflection, looking back. But not only does this song teach us to look back, it also helps us to look forward. Look with me now as we look forward with faithful expectation in verse 13, Moses sings, you have, led your, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pang seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by, to the peoples pass by whom you have purchased. Now, if you're paying attention to the grammar, you might have noticed that all the verbs I just read are translated into the past tense in English. Although all of the events are looking forward in the future. 
Let me unpack that for you. So in verse 13, uh, for example, it says that God has led them to, the ho- to his holy abode. Well, they haven't, God hasn't really led them there yet, right? They're just standing on the eastern banks of the Red Sea. They haven't made it anywhere. Um, they haven't arrived to his holy abode. In verses 14 to 16, Moses talks about how the nations have heard and are trembling about the greatness of the Lord's deliverance. Meaning that the nations have already heard about what just happened. Well, clearly... They couldn't have heard about what's just happened yet. There's no, this isn't the 21st century. If this was the 21st century, like there'd be people, you know, like with their phones out. Like people would be, you know, passing through the Red Sea with their devices out, you know, filming it. That's not happening here. There's no way that the reports of what has just happened have reached the land of Philistia and, uh, and Canaan. There's no way. So Moses is looking forward and he's doing something that is off that you often find in Hebrew prophecy. What he's doing is writing about something that's coming in the future using what's called the perfect tense. And the way we translate that in English is often with the past tense, but you could just as well it would be a faithful translation, translation to say, you will lead your people to your holy mountain. The people will tremble once they hear about what's happening. This is known as the prophetic future. It looks to future events as if they've already happened. It's almost as if the, the, the prophet who's prophesying goes into the future, sees what happens, and is coming back and reporting it as if it's already happened. It's another way to put, it's like a faithful way to, to do grammar to say, because the Lord has said it, it is sure as done. So they're looking forward with an expectant faith in the God who always makes good on his promises. So what are they expecting here? They expect, just like God has led them out of Egypt, that he will continue to lead them all the way to the promised land. He has proven his love for them by redeeming them. And they are starting to get, they're starting to believe that he is going to continue to go with them. Most prophecies like this one, have both a near and a future aspect to them. Here's what I mean by that. From a near perspective, there's usually like a a fulfillment that happens relatively close to within the time period that they're talking about. And then oftentimes it also has an even farther uh, projection. So from a near perspective, this is looking forward as they're headed into the settlement of Canaan in the promised land. That's where they're headed. And he's saying, we, we trust that God is going to lead us there. And this includes becoming a, a formal nation with a place to call home and his holy abode that there's going to be a future temple in Jerusalem where God will be pleased to dwell. But there's also, from a farther perspective, this is looking all the way to an everlasting promised land. That this becomes especially clear when you look at verses 17 to 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, and the Lord will reign forever and ever. So what's happening here is these verses that are looking forward are looking even past Mount Sinai all the way to Mount Zion, his holy mountain where the Lord will establish his temple and his sanctuary, which what will become Jerusalem one day. And it also continues. So you just keep that trajectory going forward to the establishment of the Lord's kingdom where he reigns forever and ever. 
In other words, what's happening here is they are, they are, they are, this song is a song of redemption and it's forming this prototype for all of redemptive history. If you remember when we started the book of Exodus, I talked about how this book, the book of Exodus, really sets the groundwork and foundation for the groundwork and foundation for all of what it means to be redeemed. This is Exodus is the gospel in the Old Testament and it begins to train our minds and our hearts and to create categories for redemption in the New Testament. So Let's think about it for them for a moment. The Israelites in Egypt were like the living dead. They were alive, right? They were actually moving and, and functioning. They were alive and function, but they were dead in all of the ways that make life meaningful, right? They don't have their own schedule. They don't have their own, uh, they're, they're, they're slaves. They don't have their own uh, meaning. They're enslaved in Egypt. They're essentially nobodies, non-entities, a nameless labor force in a land not their own. But... God has set his set steadfast love on them. God delivers them from slavery. He redeems them from the heavy hand of Pharaoh, whom they were powerless to do anything about. Right? 400 years have gone by. No revolts, no successful deliverance of the people. And then God comes and delivers them. And what's more is he takes these slaves and he makes them sons and daughters. Not merely citizens of, of, of God's kingdom, which would be enough, but he calls them. He says, Israel, you're my firstborn. You're like my son. You're my child. He makes them sons and daughters. He binds himself to them through covenant. We'll see this at Mount Sinai in the weeks ahead. God is going to bind himself to them as their covenantal God. He will promise to be with them and for them all the way to the promised land where they will find life where they can thrive as the people of God. Now, can't we say the same thing as Christians? Only with more focus and clarity because Christ has come. We were slaves to the passions of our flesh. Have you noticed the New Testament writers use this language of slavery to talk about our, uh, 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 how we've been bound to our sin in slavery? We were slaves to the passions of our flesh, dead in the trespasses of our sin. We are, before Christ, we're alive and function, like we're moving around, but we're dead inside. We're dead in all the ways that make life meaningful. But what happens? God set his steadfast love on us in Christ. He delivered us from slavery, redeemed us from the heavy hand of sin and death, of which we were powerless to do anything on our own. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who is, as Paul says, our Passover lamb, we have life. We have been redeemed. We have been set free. And what's more, we're not just merely citizens of the kingdom, are we? We have been made sons and daughters. The Bible tells us we are co-heirs with Christ. And what has he done? He's bound us to himself through the promises of the new covenant. He has promised to be with us and for us to the end of time when we have our forever rest in our forever home where Christ will reign as our king forever and ever. Same story. Same story, but just now with fulfillment in Christ. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what they are faithfully expecting, that God will continue to make good on his promises. We look back at the grace of God. We learn about who he is, his character, his nature, what he's done, and that propels us, and it compels us to have a kind of faith that is expectant, that is a forward-looking, that says, God, you have made promises, and you will be good to Give us those promises. Now, let's talk about expectations for a moment. 
Because sometimes expectations can get us in trouble, right? I'm telling you to have an expectant faith. A faith that is uh, 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 set with certain kinds of expectations, right? Expectations can get us in trouble if they are misplaced or ill-conceived. So here's what happens. You have expectation over here, and then you have reality over here. And if those expectations don't come to fruition, this gap in the middle is called disappointment. Right? That's often why we're disappointed. We have an expectation of what should happen. Like, uh, uh, this is what should happen. And then it doesn't happen. And then what do we feel? Disappointment. Okay? The gap between expectation and reality is called disappointment. Now, so here's what happens. You can create expectations about God that are not based in Scripture. So you just start going, listen, um, God should be like this. God should do this. I, 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 I can only believe in a God who would act like this. And you haven't consulted the Bible. You haven't let those expectations come up from a study of Scripture. You've just created those expectations on a God of your own imagination. And then what happens? You have those expectations, and then things don't happen the way you want them to, and then you're disappointed. And then where does the blame go? To the Lord. Right? So here's some of those false expectations. I should never go through suffering. I should never go through hard times where it feels like I'm not getting all that I want because God has got to love. And if God loved me, wouldn't he give me those things? Right? And, and, and friends, we may not say those things out loud because when we say it out loud, it, does, it, like, it seems kind of silly. But that's what happens in our hearts. We start to believe lies about who God is and what he's done. And and we start to create promises that God has never made. And when they don't come to fruition, we get disappointed and dejected. And we start to blame God. And then we start to fester a bitterness towards him. That is not what I mean by having an expectant faith. I'm talking about Faith and expectations that are informed and shaped by Scripture. What God promises in his word. Those are the kind of faithful expectations. Those are the kinds of promises that we need to hold out hope for. This song of redemption is instructional. It's meant to help form and shape the way we think about the promises of God and the future grace that lies ahead. And when we allow Scripture to be what forms and shapes our expectations, then we can have a faith-driven, God-centered expectation that allows us to look forward to the promises of God. And not only does looking back stir us to worship, but looking forward also stirs us to worship because we have this faithful expectation of what God is going to do. And that's why the people of God are singing in this part of the song because they are looking forward with faith to the grace that lies ahead. So this song has taught us to look back, to look forward. Now what does it mean for us to look now with renewed worship? If you were paying attention, did you notice there's a verse I left out of the song? I skipped right over it. Anyone notice that? Verse 11. It's right in the center. It's the hinge of the song. And if you know anything about Hebrew poetry, usually the center is where you find the meaning. Almost always, the center is where the meaning Western mind puts the meaning at the end. Hebrew mind puts it right in the middle. Let's look at verse 11. 
Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? At the center of this song are two rhetorical questions that are essentially asking the same thing. Who is like the Lord? And you know what the answer is? No one. There's no one like him. There's no one like the Lord. He is matchless in his steadfast love. He is unrivaled in power, matchless in holiness. He stands alone in his glory. On the champion's podium, there's no one standing up there with him. He is alone. At the center of this song is a bold declaration of the glory and awesomeness of God. And friends, that demands a response. If you come to a place where you realize there is no one like the Lord, you can't be unmoved by that. I would humbly submit to you that if all of that is true, if you believe what God has done for you in your past in bringing you to a place of salvation and, and, the, and the, the super bright future that you have ahead, that should inform what happens right now. That the only response is to give all of you to all of him. That's what worship is. Yes, it is singing, but it is so much more than that. It is all of you given to all of him. In other words, it's like what Paul says in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Remember, Romans 1 to 11 is just all about the mercy of God, what he has done to save us. And he says, so if you really think about that, what should you do? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, Exodus 15 is a song of worship meant to stir us towards a life of worship. That's what, that's what, that's what like when we sing these songs, it's not merely to have a moment, like have the moment. That's good. Enter into it. But it's meant to propel you outward to a life of worship. Worship is always more than a song. It's not less, but it's certainly more. So what does it mean to worship God with your life? I'm going to give you three words. These three words have been really helpful for me. If you've been around Seven Mile Road, you'll recognize I've said these three words before. But when I think about where my life goes uh, and gets misaligned, I try to think about it in these three categories. Here it is. Affection attention, and allegiance. They all begin with A, so you can hopefully, hopefully remember them. Affection, attention, allegiance. So what is affection? Affection is your love, that you love God above all else. It means that it sh- there should be no higher loves, no rival affections. That means you love him with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. That when you think about what do I care about most in the world, if it's not God, then you've, you're off. You've, you, you're not responding appropriately. So when you think about my life of worship, think about affections. Where are your affections? Number two, attention. This means you give him your time and your calendar. It means that you pay him attention. Like how do you feel when, no, when people don't pay you the, the proper attention? Like you're speaking and they just don't, right? Like it... It, something feels off there, right? Like, how do you feel when you're having a meaningful conversation and, and they're doing this? Anyone here like that? I hate it. Like, we have a rule in our house. Like, if we're, if we're talking, like, put the phone down. Give me your attention. We get this intuitively. It should also translate to God. 
that he gets our attention. We don't just say, yeah, yeah, God, you're up there watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. We give him attention. How do we do that? Well, he's not an afterthought. He's not a last resort. That means there should be daily interaction with him. Prayer, word, we're, we're engaging. We're saying, Lord, you deserve my attention. You've given me the gift of time. The least I could do is give you some of it back. That there is a strong commitment to the weekly gathering with God's people where we sit under the authority of the word and we're reminded again, oh yeah, my life is meant to be a life of praise and worship. This means that there's time given to building God's kingdom, not simply our own, right? He gets our attention. And finally, he gets your allegiance. That means you are loyal to him that you're committed to his ways, his rule for life. Now, does anybody do this perfectly? Of course not. Neither did the Israelites. We're not saved or chosen because of how well we perform. That said, my encouragement to you is stumble forward. Make some forward progress, no matter how silly it looks as we fall forward. Acknowledge your failures. Acknowledge them. Don't bury them. Acknowledge them. Repent. And then turn back to the Lord. One thing I love about where this song is located in the book of Exodus, if you read the very next section, you know what's going to happen? You would think these, these people should at least go a month without doing something stupid. They don't go like hours. Like their very first trek into the wilderness, they begin to grumble and complain. Can you believe that? They grumble and complain after all that God has done. Like the very next day, they're grumbling, complaining. In Exodus 15, we have adoration, even though they don't fully understand. That gives people like me hope. Adoration, even though they still have doubts. Adoration, even though in the very next chapter, they will struggle to believe that God can provide for them in the wilderness. See, they're works in progress just like us. But that said, don't settle for complacency. Don't settle for stagnation. Don't settle for compromise. Let's strive towards renewed worship. There is no one like him. And therefore, let's give all of us to all of him.